Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, the Irish naval captain who has a new career in offshore wind energy, and why tens of thousands of spider crabs were washed up on Kerry beaches this week. Captain Brian Fitzgerald was until very recently second in command of the Irish Naval Service. But just a couple of months ago he moved on and he's now joined a renewable energy company called Simply Blue Energy who are developing offshore floating wind platforms off the south coast. I caught up with him this week to hear about that new project but first about his long naval career. Yes, Fergal, I was a, I was captain. I was the uh, officer in charge of Naval Operations Command, which really uh, was in charge of the flotilla and ships, and, and I was second in command of the Naval Service. How many ships do you have in the Naval Service now? Nine ships in the Naval Service, um, which is a tremendous growth over a, a long period. I joined the Navy with five ships. How many years did you spend there? It was your whole career. Yeah, it was my whole career, really. I was uh, 38. I joined the Navy when I was 18. Uh, I spent a short time in Trinity College in Dublin, and uh, uh, my father asked me to try a cadetship when I was awarded it. Uh, so uh, I tried it. I said I'd try it for a, a short period. And uh, after 38 years, I eventually made up my mind and said, it's not for me. I'd better move on. What was the Navy like when you joined 38 years ago? Um it was a very exciting place, uh, actually, 38 years ago, because we were in the process of building the, the Etna, the first ever helicopter patrol vessel for, uh, for the Navy, and the prospect of two of them, in fact. Unfortunately, the second one did not come to pass. Um, so in terms of tech and cutting edge and, and the ability to train uh, cheek by jowl with some of the best navies in the world, I was over in uh, Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth uh, doing my training there. Um, and when I probably should have been studying for a degree and advancing uh, myself um, in that way, I was learning over there how to uh, sword fight and maybe drink a gin and tonic properly uh, and behave at a cocktail reception and stuff like that. But what fantastic experiences for a young Irish man. So as a very young man coming out of training, wh- where did you go first? Yeah, really, it is about seagoing. Um, so I went to sea and uh, and cut my teeth on the on the ships and and around Ireland. And you know, one thing that that also manifested and coincided with my career was the extraordinary expanse of our jurisdiction and uh, our areas of sovereign interest. You know, as we we expanded, uh, we we had an exclusive economic zone when I when I joined, which took us two hundred miles um out to sea off the west coast and now we're you know we're over 600 miles west of ireland you're still in ireland think of it this way you come out of cork or dublin right now and head southeast for 600 miles you'll be somewhere around lake geneva you head northwest uh, from mayo and you'll still be in ireland after 600 miles it's a it's it's quite an extraordinary jurisdiction and the proportion of our seas you know perhaps 10 times the size of our landmass and on a continental shelf, a continental shelf rich um, in in uh, all sorts of natural resources, and most particularly wind and wave, which I know we'll get on to. Mm-hmm. You know, Ireland is absolutely sitting pretty in the Northeast Atlantic here, um, with with massive potential for the natural resources around our coast. So my job really was out there patrolling that, minding it, 
protecting it um, and looking back in at the islands with that perspective to make sure it was safe. That's you, what it was. You were on fisheries protection, drug interdiction. Uh, there were some pretty wild waters out there. Yeah, there certainly is. You know, fishery protection is a kind of a, a staple, but that's not our raison d'etre. Our raison d'etre is the defence of the of the country and looking after the maritime uh, uh, sector in that regard with our colleagues on the land, the army, our colleagues in the air, the air corps. Um, uh, but while out there, the day-to-day bread and butter routine of fishery protection honed our skills. Um, and over my career as well, we went from probably a lot of intensity around um, arms interdiction. Um, certainly uh, the height of the of the IRA activity with the Marita Anne in the 80s, um, the Exxon intercepted by the French Navy um, around that time, um, leading to, I would say, a, a decisive uh, factor of the maritime interdictions of the, of the Navy um, and maritime forces made people like the IRA sit up and say, actually our supply lines have been disrupted uh we don't make arms and ammunition on ireland on the island they have to be imported so they were being smuggled in and actually at the apogee of this uh, the ira had stockpiled on the island of ireland more arms and ammunition than the entire the irish defense forces uh by the early 90s and that was that was something that could not be sustained and i think the maritime interceptions we were involved in did an awful lot uh, to, to, to cause that review and perhaps brought them indeed uh, to the peace table. In terms of the drugs, that really didn't exist, uh, except in a very, very minor way in the 80s when I joined the Navy. But over time, oh my goodness, has, has it come to be uh, you know, endemic in our society. It is everywhere. Yeah, you've been, now, you've been involved in one or two drugs raids at sea. I have. I have. I've been involved in, in a number of them, uh, several of them, some of the biggest drugs hauls in the history of Europe from a from an operations point of view on the base. But one that I was directly involved in, actually, there's a funny element to the story now that I remember it, because you and I uh, played rugby and just sporting conditions came into this, whereby uh, it was the Posidonia in 1999, and I was the boarding officer, and I just set off with my 10-man crew in the middle of November, and we knew there was something wrong with this vessel, it was something odd. It was a, it was a yacht, it was a motor sailor, um, about 40 feet. Um, and uh, when we got on board, one of the most exhilarating things I think I've ever experienced in my career was actually getting on board that vessel in the dead of night in winter. So you were um, on deck, it, you were dressed in all your gear and, and armed? Armed, uh, fully stealth, fully blacked out. Our ship, the L.A. Keir, under the command of Martin McGrath, was standing by. Uh, in absolute blackout conditions whereby it was right beside the vessel and the vessel did not know it was there. We were there fully camouflaged. They did not know we were there. Um, And it came time to open the door and go in and therefore make our presence felt or make our presence known. And the big worry at this point is if they're alerted to our presence, would they scuttle the vessel or indeed scuttle the contraband that may uh, be there, which turned out that it was. But in any case, uh, I opened the door. I was first through the door. I did, let you them know did you knock? We were. Uh, <laughs> no, for God. I didn't knock. <laughs> Rest assured, once I opened that door, it wasn't you going kicked to it stick in. on me. Uh, you can take it that I kicked it in, but it's the next part, I think, is the humorous part, really, whereby um, once I got in, I had penetrated the cabin as far as I possibly could in order to allow the full team in behind me and get control of whatever crew members were there. Um, and I could see the skipper endeavouring to head to the wheelhouse, and that was what concerned me the most. And I could see 
see the doorway he was heading for and it was my job to get there and just get control of that situation as quickly as I could. But right in front of me, I didn't notice, but out of my peripheral vision, there was a very large obstacle. I don't know what the obstacle was uh, at the time or I didn't recognise it, but it felt like, we'll say, a tackle situation in a rugby match or a ruck and I had to clear it in order to get to the ball, let's say, on the other side. Uh, And I duly did so and uh, and I had the skipper right there and then. Um, And I knew then I had control of the vessel. So I started questioning the skipper under caution shortly thereafter. And I came to a point in the interchange where I said to him, uh, do you have any drugs on board the vessel? And he looked at me in a kind of a little bit of a bewildered way. And I looked back at him and what I had jumped over was the largest pile of drugs you could find anywhere. I completely missed it. Um, what what so did you we find? Out, we found one and a half tons of cannabis resin. Um, and the reason it was all out on the deck is that they had suspected our presence and had endeavoured to move it from one hiding place to another hiding place. And indeed, had stockpiled the whole thing in the middle of the deck uh, when we had got there. Um, now, we were accompanied that night by the Customs and Excise and the Garda Shikana, also as a, a members of the Joint Task Force uh, were there on our arrival uh, to execute the, uh, all of the necessary arrest and, and these guys did end up uh, in jail from uh, the operation. As your career went on, you were then involved in the search for Rescue 116. What an incredible tragedy and what a privilege uh, to have been working and meeting the families and dealing with them and indeed bringing them out to the rock. We were the at-sea unseen coordinator working extremely closely with the Garda Shikona. Uh, the Irish Coast Guard were leading the operation. Um, we had the Air Accident Investigation Unit. Finding the wreckage was one of the most difficult parts of that operation. Uh, the crew of my ship managed to uh, manoeuvre the ship with me and with confidence to use a kind of an underwater multi-beam echo sounder. Uh, we went so close to the rock uh, that it managed to to create a trace that allowed us to target um, uh, the search uh, and find the actual wreckage. But once too often, Fergal, once too often in my career, I have been involved in in bringing uh, the results of tragedy ashore. And that is that is massive. But as islanders, you know, and if you're from Ireland, you are an islander. As islanders, you know, we, we know this. We know this and we've we've lived with this. And unfortunately, we'll probably live with it into the future. You then went down to the Mediterranean. You captained your ship down there on the rescue mission for migrants. I did. did, uh, Fargo, that was probably the most extraordinary experience of my career. Um, To take the Elietna, our flagship, down there in 2017 um, and involve ourselves in that uh, humanitarian mission and represent Ireland uh, and do our bit for uh, the the tragedy that was really the human tragedy that was unfolding there. So as the captain of the ship, when you're captain of a military ship and you arrive in a scene where there is emergency at sea, you generally get asked by local authorities to take on the on-scene coordination role, not unlike what happened in in Black Sod in Mayo with Rescue 116. And therefore, not alone were we rescuing migrants there, but we were coordinating all of the search and rescue operations that may have unfolded on a particular day. 
Uh, we had two uh, really massive rescues. Um, we had, I think, 705 people on one rescue. We had 712 on board our ship and another rescue. You know, that was above even the limits that we had calculated that the ship would be capable of, of taking. But there was no way you could leave anybody behind. But in one particular story that just brought home the whole thing to me really was that uh, uh, after a long, long day where my crew had worked tirelessly from about 6 a.m. right through to 11 p.m. rescuing 700 and, and, and 11 people. Uh, I got a phone call at 2 a.m. to be told uh, the number of people on board now is 712. And what had happened is one of the females rescued had given birth on board my ship in the previous two hours with the Navy medics and the Army medics that we had on board, our own Irish medics, uh, delivering the baby, you know. And I got up um, and I went down to meet the mother and the child uh, and congratulate the medical crew. And I was there with them. And there we were on a starry night in the middle of the Mediterranean, you know, this incredible situation where there wasn't an inch on that deck even to plant your foot um, uh, amongst all the migrants that we had rescued and speaking to the mother she offered me to hold the baby and I and I held that baby and I sat with the mother and when I had the baby in my arms I I said even though they probably couldn't understand me but I said it aloud that uh, uh, to the baby to the mother I said I don't know where you have come from uh, I don't know where you are going but at this moment in your life you're safe and I think that summed up what, what Ireland could bring to the Mediterranean. And it was, that will stay with me for life. That was, that was a really, really incredible uh, position for Irish people to find themselves in and to be able to deliver. Uh, that, that, that's an extraordinary um, outcome that the Irish Navy can train people uh, to perform at the levels that they were able to perform down there in that mission. And we've, we have a tremendous record from there. An extraordinary length of service, but recently you've left the Navy and you've moved on. Uh, yes, I have. Uh, the Navy has a very, um, uh, very probably uh, reasonable uh, rule whereby they try to uh, recruit and uh, retain uh, youth. Um, and therefore, I would have compulsorily retired um, uh, within three years anyhow. So when, when an opportunity came up for me to work in the maritime sector, um, I certainly uh, was very happy to receive that approach. And when it was uh, outlined to me what it was, I was just really, really taken by it. Uh, I've often operated by the adage um, that our greatest responsibility as human beings is to be good ancestors, a quote by Jonas uh, Salk, um, uh, uh, who had developed a polio vaccine in the 1950s. Um, and I find that this whole narrative around climate change uh, has really grabbed hold at something that has emerged as well, I suppose, over my, 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 my working career, uh, to see us go from perhaps scepticism around this to mere, nearly total buy-in, and it is the youth it is the youth who are buying uh, into this and are convincing us, the older ones, that we need to do something about it because I think we are borrowing. We are mm -hmm. borrowing from our youth's future um, and, and, and spending that. But uh, So what you've joined a company called Simply Blue Energy. It's a, a floating wind project. Tell me something about that. Ireland has already committed as a, as a policy to be net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, what that will translate into is that Ireland must 
uh, or will require 25 gigawatts. Now, don't worry about the, the, the science of this just yet. I'll explain it. 25 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2050. So the next question is, how many gigawatts do we produce today? We produce 4.5 today, and we have to grow to 25 gigawatts. So this technology is coming. That's the point. This is this is the future. And the second thing is that Ireland has one of the greatest natural resources of wind available to us, and it's get atable. There's potential here for Ireland to become the power battery of Europe from wind energy alone. And what we're talking about here is our floating wind pro- projects, which would be much further off the coast than the things we're used to. Yes, this is something that floating can it can offer. Floating technology, which is advancing uh, a pace, um, we anticipate that by 2030, we will be in a position to have a fully operational wind farm, one off uh, the Cork coast in the area of the old Kinsale gas okay. field, uh, and another one off the coast of Clare. But as you say, over the horizon, ostensibly. So further offshore, because you can anchor these in deeper water. And that's the that's one of the biggest advantages of, of floating. Uh, and that's why that technology exists. Um, and Ireland is perfectly poised for this. You're, you're working on that towards the future, but you still are involved with the third world charity Goal. And that's work that's very important to you. Yes, it is, Fergal. I'm, I'm privileged to be a member of the board of Goal. Above all else, I suppose that is one of the most rewarding things I have uh, I've ever witnessed and been, to be involved in the, uh, you know, it's not unlike what I experienced in the Mediterranean with the Navy. Um, that is, uh, it's a real privilege to be involved in that sector. Captain Brian Fitzgerald. And the absolute best of luck to him in his new career. Earlier this week, people in Kerry were disturbed to find tens of thousands of large spider crabs washed up along beaches. Noel Sweeney met the director of Dingle Ocean World, Kevin Flannery, to try and establish what had killed these prehistoric-looking crabs. We're surrounded here by hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of the spider crab. What happened here, Kevin? Well, the spider crab, uh, Maharis, the Maharis area, Brandon Bay, Trilly Bay, is the home of the spider crab population of Ireland, basically. The hu- obviously, they're around the coast as well in other parts, but the main, main spawning area and the main uh, volume of them is off of the Maharis. And uh, fishermen have been selling them in not great numbers, but especially last year, they weren't able to sell uh, many of them because of the COVID situation. But the spider crab come inshore, the females come inshore to release their young this time of the with the May moon and in doing so Brandon Bay is north facing it's a vast bay of 20-30 miles long and it's north facing and when they came so far inshore to release their young the females carried their eggs underneath them under the carapace and then with the May moon ideal times they release their young altogether thousands upon thousands of these crab come in and they release all their eggs but the problem this year the phenomenon was we have northerly winds as everybody know old people or people still call it the scaravine and we had hard cold northerly winds strong winds and when these crab were inshore along the beaches here the big swell came pounded them and just after they released their young they were pounded they were weak and they were washed up on the shoreline unable to get back down the northerly wind dried them out and so we have this phenomenon of all these dead 
thousands, closer than hundreds of thousands of these dead spider crabs here. How will the stranding here affect the wider sea life in the area? The stranding will, this type of stranding will have an effect because basically what happens after the females are finished releasing their young, they move off outside. Then they molt because basically shellfish are like a tin can or a car. For them to get bigger, they got to throw off their shell. It's called molting. And they do this process and that's when they are soft. So they throw off their outer shell and then they get bigger and they have, they're soft and they create huge mounds I mean mounds of uh, and it, it could be two to three kilometers wide and it could be thousands of them together now they're soft now this is the ideal time for the other species to come in and feed them this is when the stingrays come in this is when the undulated rays the blondie rays all the rays all the different species come in and feed them because the crab are soft they're ideal for eating and that's the time they all come now you won't have the volume, so it will have a knock-on effect possibly on the stingrays, on the numbers and on the rest of the species that come into them. So that in itself will have that effect. We don't know because no assessment or no stock assessment has been carried out on stingrays. We were hoping to carry it out this year in conjunction with uh, Queen's University and uh, um, the Marine Institute, but alas, that couldn't take place because of COVID. But hopefully it won't have that dramatic effect because, as I say, the stock is pretty strong due to the fact that there was no sales last year. Kevin, we're not unfamiliar with, with storms in this area. What's different about this one? Well, the difference of this one is that it came so late in the year. The, 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 as I say, we're not usually used to being so cold in the month of May. I mean, a month's time, you're coming up to the longest day, and yet people are wearing jackets. Not many people are lying out on the beaches. We're still getting that cold, scarabine-type uh, weather, as they call it, and it's having that effect. The, the, the interesting thing is that the spider crab are vital. They're a vital part of the Trilly Bay oyster because without the spider crab people don't realise that the oyster bed would be annihilated and would be gone long ago but the spider crab feed on what we call the starfish. Starfish feed on huge number of oysters. They will pull the oyster apart, same as they do with the scallop, same as they do with the mussels, and they'll devour them. They can eat up anything to 40 to 50 small oysters in a day. But the spider crab feed on the starfish. So therefore they are protecting Trilly Bay oysters and the whole oyster bed up in Trilly Bay. So it's vital that the spider crab be maintained and the stocks of spider crab be maintained. And this, if you take them all out and if they were all to die, it would have a dramatic follow-on effect. Rihimuranthil, they call it, the big circle of life. And if you take one out of that wheel, if you break a spoke, you're affecting the whole ecosystem of Trilly Bay, of Brandon Bay, and of Kerryhead, and of all the area around. So the importance of the of spider crab, people may disregard them. They have no regard to them in Ireland. We don't eat them as such. Most 99% of them are exported. 99.9% of them are exported. Very few people eat them. But at the same time, they're still vitally important for the whole ecosystem of Brandon Bay and Kerry. How long would it have taken for the whole lot of them to come in? Would it be hours or a day or how long? Overnight, virtually, because they're all coming together. And when one releases the eggs, it starts and when the moon comes up 
I think it's, it's, it's the moon, the main moons basically that start most of the spawning and then once that starts they all go together and they release all their eggs. The eggs would have been fertilised from the time they would be molting because they, they, these crabs, crabs invented artificial insemination, the females did, long before vets and everybody else thought of it because when they molt and throw off their shells they mate, they are able to hold the sperm inside in their body and then they fertilise their eggs when, later on when they're ready, when the, the shells have gone hard and the whole lot so they can hold the sperm and then release the sperm on their eggs inside the females when all the story is done with a month later. Is there a chance at all that a percentage of these spider crab would have survived and made their way back to sea at all? Oh, there's a percentage of them would have survived, yeah. There's no doubt about that. There some of them would still be out there. But just that they were the, the vast majority of them were caught in the swell and they were caught with the ebbing tide. So the tide went out when they were dumped in and they would have to march down. But after releasing their eggs and the females, they'd be weak. And that's when they're, they're more, they were most vulnerable. So, alas, it's just this phenomenon that happened. And as I say, I've seen it once before and let's hope it won't happen again but climate change you never know. Kevin how long will the carcasses be be here before they decompose? Disappearing as we stand with the tide comes in the swell comes over them the, 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 the gulls have had their feed they're all full of crab they're well fed the gulls so there'll be a great young gull population this year <laughs> there's always a silver lining for somebody in it but they're being covered over by the weed and by the sand and, and the skinners that are in Brandon Bay will devour them then these sand hoppers they devour they go in and they'll eat up the, the contents of the body be it rotten or otherwise they no will, need for Kerry County Council no need for Kerry County Council at this point no Noel Sweeney with Kevin Flannery on a windy beach in County Kerry this week. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're lucky enough to be anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.